Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer, programmer, and producer, songwriter, and remixer Stephen Wolf. Also known as Wolf, he is one of the most in-demand studio musicians. His discography includes numerous number one gold, platinum, and Grammy-winning records. A virtuoso drummer and world-class programmer with an encyclopedic musical vocabulary spanning every musical genre, his distinctive skill set and versatility made him the go-to rhythm solution for a long list of the world's top recording artists and producers. A few of Wolf's credits include working with artists like Alicia Keys, Beyonce, David Bowie, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, Pink, Aretha Franklin, Britney Spears, Avril Lavigne, Shaka Khan, Joss Stone, Kelly Clarkson, Jennifer Hudson, Liana Lewis, Annie Lennox, Celine Dion, and so many more. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. As you'll hear in this episode, we talk about a young drummer named Tim Hepburn. I want to say thanks to Tim for connecting me with Stephen for this conversation. I was familiar with Stephen Wolf, uh, but he was not currently on my radar. But I feel like the conversation here is very important as those of us are exploring different options in which to create and compose and use our drumming skills in different ways. And this is exactly what Stephen Wolf has done. So thanks to Tim Hepburn for making that connection. And I'm really excited about this conversation and I hope you are too. So here's my conversation with Stephen Wolf. Big shout out to to Tim Hepburn for connecting us. Uh, young player, has been in Nashville for a few years, has connected with you. And and did he take a lesson with you? Did he hang? He with did. You? Okay. It was more like a it was more like a consultation than a lesson. Like we okay. didn't play any drums. He just came to my place in New York and um, just asked me like business questions and you know how to like what a lot of people when they're at, at the age he was at the time, like, how do I break in? How do I like get from where I am now to, you know, doing 
more sessions or bigger, like bigger tours or just, you know, kind of like, how do I get my foot in the door more or less? Sure. And I wanted to, yeah. to kind of use that as a launching point to say, when young people come to you, uh, mm -hmm. like Tim, like, what are they asking? What, and what is your reaction to that? It's, and it's the same thing. I'll get like random DMS or emails through my site or, uh, or somebody's somebody that I know, you know, my, like my, I have a music attorney and then I have, he's actually a friend now, but he was my divorce attorney from like my second marriage. No, my first marriage. Sorry. Now I'm <laughs> dating myself, but, uh, um, his son is now like a drummer at Berkeley. And, um, he was like, I, I don't know anything about music. Can you talk to him? Like, yeah. and I've, I've had that with a few friends that now have kids that are that age. Like they're, they're finishing high school. They're really serious about music. Some of them, most of them are drummers, but some are just, you know, musicians. And, um, and it's the same thing. Like, what do they do? Like, and it's cool that these parents care and, and are even open to like considering like music as, as a career. Cause my parents were not into it at all. Well, you and I are, are one of the first generation to come up with, yes. with choices. And yeah, our parents were, were raised by parents that made it through the depression and war and uh -huh. everything like exactly. that. So yeah, yeah. you and I, I mean, yeah. I, I get it. Like, we don't take yeah. it for granted. But now we have, I have a 17-year-old that's at the School of the Arts. And yeah. we are trying to do everything we can to give him the opportunities to, to be successful yeah. as he wants to. Yeah, which is great. So when they ask me, um, I'll just be like, well, what do you want to do? Like, for, cause like if I could go back in time and give myself advice when I was in my teens, it would be like, it's, I'm, I am glad I, I, I was so like overboard with practicing when I was in junior high and high school. And even when I was at Berkeley, I wasn't planning on graduating. I was like, I want to get as much playing experience as I can. And yeah. I want to get like quote unquote discovered and get a gig, which I did. I dropped out. And, but so by the time I was 20, I got my first major label gig, first endorsement. Yeah. Um, and by the time I was in my mid twenties, I had kind of scratched everything off my bucket list, but I also blew my hands out, blew my back out. That's one of the reasons I stopped touring after 10 years. I just physically had just wiped, burnt myself out at such a young age. And, yeah. um, and also, I, as my name was, as I was getting on more high-profile gigs, I started getting more high-profile high sessions. Yeah. And then when I, if I was on tour for month, like months at a time, I would get calls for better sessions and I'd miss it. And I realized I, I actually prefer recording and it's, it's, it doesn't fuck me up as much physically as touring did. And it wasn't just the, the hands and the back. It was also... Like back then, you could smoke on airplanes. Like I, my first flight to Japan, I literally got bronchitis from being on a smoking flight for fourteen hours, and I was in a, like a quote unquote non-smoking row, which right, right. that whole concept is ridiculous. So, and the, um, and the prop planes were so loud back then. Wait, no, you're not <laughs> yeah. not going that yeah. far back. <laughs> I did fly some prop planes though, going like playing at some of these like jazz festivals on like Caribbean islands where yep. like you take a yeah. So I did that too. Um, but everything, I felt like I'm 20, I'm so old, like I have to do this. And it's like, now I'm like 20 as a baby. Like, yeah. it's like you're, you're, you're a child. So I, first of all, I tell them all, like, take your time. Like, I mean, be productive, but take your time and then figure out what you want to do. Because there are a lot of ways to make money in music. And also, 
like music is constantly changing and it's always been the kind of thing where like odds are against you getting like that brass ring type of gig. So just you have, you know, you have to want it. Like I think anything in the arts, like it has to be like, it's not a choice. Like you have to like, like you don't have a choice. Like this is what you want to do with your life period. And then, and then from there, figure out what you want to do, figure out where you want to arrive at and then kind of reverse engineer it from there. And now like you have so much access to people on like, you know, if you want, like when we were coming up, I don't know who your, who your idols were at different ages, but like, like Billy Cobham, like now somebody can get on, get it like a Skype lesson with Billy Cobham or, or who, right. like whomever the current version of that, like Nate Smith or somebody who's like a marquee drum star. Um, I mean, back then I could go to a Billy Cobham clinic every once in a while, but now you can like be mentored by anybody. And, and there's so much information out there. And also like shops are ubiquitous now, which like back then, like you had to like really to get that kind of knowledge, you had to figure out so much on your own. And um, I was going to say, could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. I just hear like, I hear like, five-year-olds that can like play shit and then i'll hear like a 10-year-old who has like vini chops and and it's like don't get me wrong i love i'm all about technology i think it's great that all this and i love that all my favorite clips are on youtube but um back in the day when i was at berkeley there were only a handful of us who had like like legit chops and then I had friends that got there with no chops. And then after, like, they graduated and four years later, they had, like, like solid chops. But now, like, chops are easy to come by. Like, if, let's say you want to learn, like, the latest, again, I'll use Nate Smith as an example. Okay. Or, I don't know, um, who's, I don't even know. I, kind of, I don't really pay attention to that kind of drumming that much anymore because it has very little to do with the kind of work I do. Yeah. Um, and also when I kind of outgrew like fusion for myself, I, I stopped being interested in, in like drums playing that role. But um, there was a time where I was all about that, like putting my finger on a Billy Cobb or Tony Williams like vinyl to like slow it down enough so I could transcribe it. Right. But um, so for kids now, like let's say a kid like loves a, a drum performance by I'll just say Vinny just because like Vinny's still like the oh, guy. Yeah. And um. And like, not only can you find countless videos of, of Vinny playing it and maybe explaining it, but you can find 50 other videos of like YouTube drummers breaking down, here's how you play it. And For some sure. of them are right, some of them are wrong, but it's just like, it's easy to get that information now. So there are like, everybody has chops now, but not literally everybody, but there's, you know, there's so many people like people on like social media you'll see these like younger and younger drummers that have chops but they all sound it's ubiquitous but it's also homogenous like everybody kind of sounds the same because you know back when i was like transcribing that stuff i didn't there was no internet there was no way for me to confirm is this right so i was guessing and by getting some stuff wrong i'd come up with my own version of shit right in your own voice yeah, and then I would try and reverse engineer what they did and come up with my own variations of that theme. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, and so like I feel like the drummers from our generation and previous generations ev- like everybody kind of had more of their own voice. Mm-hmm. And now there's some really impressive younger drummers coming up, but like and 
there's still like certain people cut through and really have like a, a, a recognizable like sound on the instrument, but a lot of them don't. Like I'll, and some of that's the gear. Like, like I like, you know, it's going back to like the stacks. Like it's yeah. I'll see people playing the exact same setup. Their drums all sound the same, and then they're playing the same like like licks because they all learn it from the same shit online. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And there's not a lot of depth to it. There's not like it doesn't mean anything. Is this something you, know I mean? you you would talk to Tim about when when he would ask? I think with Tim we were talking about um, more just like what makes you you because when it comes down to it, like chops or not, let's say like Tim is like I have no interest in like doing fusion gigs. Like I just want to be a working drummer playing groove music. Yeah. And like great like. What there are a lot of drummers who can like have like a nice pocket and are musical and like look good on stage and are like easy to get along with because that's like the first going back to your question like the basics are be good at what you do yeah which is we could unpack that because there's a lot of like people who are not really realistic about that like mm. like look at the market like are can you compete with like the people that are out there doing the gigs you want to do. Mm-hmm. And you have the same skill set. So, um, like now, like when I, when I was getting into electronics really young, that they, they, I was one of the first few drummers I knew of that like had like a pad controller right. and a sampler, and was we did, it wasn't called hybrid drumming then. It was just you know augmenting your kit with electronics. And um, now, like I have like one of my friend's kids was like, yeah, I would love to tour with like so and so, a big pop act. And I was like, cool. What's your electronic knowledge? And he's like, well, I don't really have any. And I said, you know how to run Ableton? He said, no. Um, but I'm thinking about it. And I said, do you have any pads? Do you know how triggers work? Like, mm-hmm. um, and he said no. And I said, have you checked out the drummers playing on that gig? And I was like, I know the drummer on that gig, and he has a really extensive hybrid drum kit, and like you say you want to do those gigs like you need to know that shit because there's 30 other drummers like at that level playing wise who can also like run ableton and like you know have their like hybrid setup like together so so if i can um, just for a second like to unpack a little bit of that we want to spend time in the practice room and you know open up stick control and the david garibaldi book and all these things but maybe we hit pause on that and we watch some tutorials on Ableton. We download the yeah. free version of that. We start to familiarize ourselves with that because that is a skill set just like it's being able to play. like playing brushes or sight reading or anything else. Like figure out what you want to do. And that, that goes back to being good at what you do. So like, like if you said, I just want to play like straight ahead jazz gigs. All right. How's your brush playing? Like, yeah. do you know all the standards? Like... And you know how to interpret them in the like style of Art Blakey versus Elvin versus Mac or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, that's cool. But if you're talking about I want to tour with Billie Eilish or I want to tour with Katy Perry, then like, can you run Ableton? And even if the, if you're on a gig where you're not running it and the keyboard player is running it or they have somebody backstage running it, yeah. which is a common thing on bigger tours now, do you at least have, do you know how to play along? Like, yeah. can you play a whole set of music with like the, the guide tracks and a click? And... If they're like, hey, we really want you to trigger like the sounds from the record on each song on your kick and snare, and there's some other like auxiliary sounds, so we need to have some pads around your acoustic drums. Can you can you put all that together quickly? 
And yeah, to your point, those are all like valid skill sets that you kind of need now. If But if you want to work in that, like you don't have to know everything. Like you don't have to read. Reading has helped me like... I rarely get charts anymore, but once in a while I do. And learning how to sight read at an early age, like will guarantee that I can like step into some of those situations when I need to. Well, also keep in mind, if you know how to read, you know how to write. So if you need to put something together or or augment. Yeah. If you're, if you're doing something at the last minute where you have to learn a lot of music quickly, yeah, Mm -hmm. you can chart it out. Exactly. And, um, but so to go back to that, be good at what you do. And then also, like, don't be a dick. It's like, you know, ba- basically that, that's it. It's, it's like because most of the gig is like off stage or out of, you know, or like not recording, like whether, whether it's sessions or whatever, it's the hang. And are you somebody that people want to hang out with? So, I see the subtitle of this episode already. Stephen Wolf, <laughs> colon, don't be a dick. Yeah. Perfect. So, I love it. <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> it's yeah, it, it's though it's basically like those are the two main things. Also, be reliable and a oh, bunch yeah. of other stuff. But yeah. it's, um, but yeah. Th- so I start out with that, but then I break it down like further. Like, what do you want to do? Like, figure out what you want to do, and then like kind of focus on that. But with Tim, I was like, also focus on what makes you uniquely you, and like, like that is a strength. You know what I mean? Like that's. And, um, and I forget what we talked about, like specifically, but I remember he came up with something and I was like, that's great. Lean into that because like, how do you separate yourself from like 20 other drummers that are going to show up at a cattle call audition that all can play the parts well and that are all like, like easy to get along with like chill personalities. Yeah. Like what's it, what's going to make people remember you? Like when you come in and when you leave and like, you just like leave a good energetic impression on people. So yeah, it's really interesting. And, and, and this has been a common theme over the eight years and almost 400 episodes is, is just kind of lean into being who you are and, and have the confidence with that. And people, they pick up on that even subconsciously that when you are trying to be everyone else and, when you live in a town like New York or Los Angeles yeah. or Atlanta or yeah. wherever, and, and I, I learned that early on in Nashville, I felt overwhelmed with the talent, but yeah. I also felt like it was a free a freeing up and being like, okay, yeah. I'm not going to be Greg Morrow, so guess what? Stop trying to be him. Be yeah, yourself. Be you. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we talked about that, and... um. I don't remember what else we talked about, um, but I think that was that's the one thing that I remember about hanging with Tim was yeah. like li- figure out what makes you you and lean into that because at the end of the day, that's when you're the kind of work you want to do. There are a lot of other people that have a similar skill set that also want to do that work. So, well, I only met like, Tim once in person, yeah. and I can tell you, um, yeah. I, I feel like his he's he's just receptive to new things. He's yeah. wide-eyed. He's excited about things, and I think yeah. people are going to see that in him and be like, yeah. "Dude, we yeah. need to work together." He's, yeah, and he's a good dude. And like, I remember meeting him. Like, he, I think I, I rarely play live. Like, once I stopped touring, that was kind of it. But once in a while, um, and I've been friends with Oz Noise since the early '90s when I was still a fusion guy. Yeah, and by the time he, and I met him when I was playing in Tel Aviv. And when he and that's when I met Nir. I met Nir when he was still like king wow. of the Tel Aviv like session scene. And so I remember when both those guys moved to New York and Oz 
like called me. He was like, "Hey, man, I'm putting a band together." And he had seen me on tour with with like some fusion artists at the time, and um, and uh, I was like, I really, I was like, I kind of outgrew fusion. It's just not for me anymore. But if you ever do like a groove based record, call me. And like you know, 20 years later, he's like, "Hey, man, I'm doing a funk record." Do you want to play on it? And I was like, absolutely. Yeah. And he said, okay, well, here's the deal. I have this Monday night residency at the bitter end and you're going to do a bunch of these gigs with me. And I was like, can I skip the gigs? <laughs> and, and he's like, no. And I was like, fuck it. I live five minutes from the bitter end. I can just, I'll do it. But yeah. um, that's the one thing. And this is like a, a kind of related to what we're talking about. Well, when I changed, when I shifted, when I made the conscious decision to say, I am walking away from touring and I had worked my way up to like, a-list tours. I want to ask and, you about like, Annie Lennox. that stuff. I want to ask you about yeah. the, that coming up. Yeah. When, when you, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, we can talk about that. But um, it was, I knew I was taking a risk walking away from that because it's like I'm established in this and I can get another however many decades out of doing this kind of work if I want to, but I will, I can't do this and do the type of session work I want to do full time. Right. So. There's that, you know, burn the ships mentality where like you, you, so I was like, all right, I'm going to tell everybody don't call me for tours. And so I am basically burning the ships. I am stuck. Like I, I am going to like get the session thing together or die trying. So, um, when I, when I did that, sorry, I totally forgot where I'm also sleep deprived, by the way, I apologize. Like I, I've barely slept this week. Um, Yeah. Was there a time that was difficult yeah. to make once you yeah. decided that? Yeah. Was there just like, yeah. a, oh my gosh, like I'm not, yeah. how am I going to make ends meet? Yeah. Um, not really. I had a little bit of a nest egg at that okay. point. Okay. And, um, but I also knew that because of like, it wasn't the, the best time to say I'm going to be a full-time session drummer. Because at that point that like, if you looked at the top 40 any on any given month, it was mostly not real drums. But the good thing was I had gotten into drum programming really early. And this was 1999, and, 2000. Yeah. yeah. So, and I was already getting some programming work and some remix work. And so I was like, I can do drum programming too. But then at the time, I also realized that why is somebody going to hire me to just do drum programming when they can hire a keyboard player who will program keyboards and like decent drums? Yeah. So that's when I built up my collection of synths and all the non-drum stuff. And... I got my foot in the door as a drum programmer by programming not just drums. Okay. And then when people, and there were producers that didn't even know I played drums. They thought I was just a keyboard player who programmed drums too. And I was like, I don't play keyboards. I can sequence keyboards really well, but I don't, yeah. I don't have any keyboard chops. And, um, and then when they found out I played drums, then people started calling me more and more to do like a, like a combination of drumming and drum programming. And that kind of, led to kind of where I'm at now. And, um, but I had to do a lot of non-drum gigs, production gigs, writing gigs, all kinds of other stuff, which to me has made me a much better drummer by doing right. all that stuff. Because um, most of the stuff that I do now, like I don't need any of the chops. Oh, now I remember where I was with Oz. Like I, I don't, when Oz called me to do these gigs, I had no chops and no stamina because the majority of the work I do, you don't really need either. Like if I, even if I do a few takes in a row, I can still rest in between. Like right. In between. Studio chops. Playing, yeah. Very different. And the kind of music I'm doing, it's like less is more. So it's, and it's not just being simple for the sake of being simple. It's like, you're just finding the essentials. Like the, like 
the fewest best ingredients you can for the song you're playing yeah, on yeah. or programming on. And um, so I remember like the first few gigs, even though we were all pl- only playing an hour, I was hurting because it's like I haven't played an hour straight. Like, oh, wow. even though it's a small room and I remember Tim was at some of those gigs and I just remembered like to bring it back, like as soon as you meet him, besides like he's also like a big dude, like he stands out that way, but he's also really nice. Like yeah. you meet some people and you can just tell this person has really good energy. Yeah. And so, yeah, like, and that goes back to what we we're talking about. Like make, that's you. Like that's, that's part of your, your skill set is like being a good dude with a large physical presence. Like be that guy to go back to what you're talking about. But, um, but yeah, it's, if, if I need chops, if, I don't know. I doubt it will ever happen. But like if if I got a tour that I couldn't refuse and I had to go out for like a year and playing two, three hours a night, I could get the chops back. I could get the stamina back. Um, But the thing that I have really developed by not really dealing with that stuff, um, doing all the things that aren't drum centric have just made me such like a much better asset as a drummer and drum programmer because... I really when I when I do any drum work now I'm really kind of approaching it as as a producer. So okay. like if I had to describe what I do I'm like a, a, a rhythm producer or a drum producer. Like there's some people that are vocal producers that they just concentrate on that. And I have produced full records and I still do that sometimes, but it's whether somebody's having me do a drum track from scratch or they're calling me to like fix or like tweak an existing drum part. Either redo all the programming or all the acoustic drumming or add acoustic drums over an existing program track or add programming to an existing acoustic track or the combination. It's so I'd I'd love to unpack that right there is, is just the kind of the current state, the current process. And maybe there's an example of something that you've done recently and maybe even in the last couple years that you can cite. Maybe there's an example of like, look, and, and when we say, Everything's in the box. Like you're not using an MPC. You're not using a controller. No, I'm just I'm mousing everything in. Like, well, it depends. If I if it's MIDI, I'm mousing the MIDI notes in. Yeah. And then editing them. And if it's like just I'm importing samples and flying them around the grid, like it's it's almost like reading sheet music and learning to recognize rhythms. I can look at a MIDI grid and I can mouse in a full drum part on addictive drums without even listening to it because I just know where my grid is at. And I know what, like how to look at dynamics to know that my ghost notes are at, the right, are at the right velocity. And, you know, I just know what the patterns look like. And if I'm doing that with samples where, let's say it's a pop track where it's a really simple part where it's like just a kick part and a hand clap and maybe some, like a riser and like an impact, like on the choruses, something very yeah. basic and modern. But it's really th- three kick drums and like three hand claps all layered. I'll just import... I'll go through my sample drive, I'll import stuff, I'll line them up, and then I'll just copy and paste everything. And again, I don't have to listen to it. I can can just set the grid to whatever subdivision I need to, put it where I want it, and then get the dynamics dialed in. And then if I need to pitch something, then I need my ears. I'll use like audio suite and and do pitch and time or whatever pitch I'm using to, I usually tune, unless it's like like a really punchy kick where there is no real tone, I tune anything that has a tone, I tune to the track, either a root or a fifth. Okay, and, um, okay. Oh, interesting, and, um, root or a fifth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because 
that'll work with any major minor um oh, of if, course if you get it yeah and um and that's another thing i tell drummers like just learn harmonic you know mute, the harmonic side of things too it helps and um i'll do the same thing with my acoustic kit if um i've talked about this on it i forget which podcast but like wrecking ball the miley cyrus song yeah yeah i played live drums on that it's just in the choruses i don't think there are any drums in the verse and okay there was so already, ironically i yeah, played last night yeah. and tim was going to come out and yeah. and the singer i work with she's amazing and yeah. um, it, it it's it's a downtown Nashville gig, and it's all covers, yeah. and and it's all like whatever people want to hear. And somebody asked for Wrecking yeah. Ball, and I listened yeah. to that this weekend because I knew you yeah. played on it, yeah. and I was like, that's so funny. And so we, I played that last yeah. night. Not, I mean, yeah, uh, a lot it's of just, symbols, a lot more symbols than you played, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, but it's a really simple drum part. You know yeah. what I mean? It's it's just kick, snare, like and a crash in the downbeat, but it was already programmed by the time the producer sent it to me and I did it remotely in New York. They, I, I don't know if they were working in Nashville or LA when they did it, but I was in New York and I took it to my friend's studio. Um, that's another thing. Like I have a, like in New York and LA, I have studio, I'll work at whatever studio an engine, like a producer wants me to work at. But yeah. when it's Somebody's just saying, hey, can you cut these drums remotely? There, there's a room in New York called uh, Mission Sound in Brooklyn, owned by Oliver Strauss, who's a drummer turned engineer, studio owner. And he has a great collection of gear, so all I have to bring are sticks. And he can get whatever drum sound I want. I'll tell him the reference, and we'll have the drum sound dialed up immediately. That's amazing. And there's a place out here in L.A. Um, called Ultimate Studios, and Charlie Waymeyer is the owner, also a drummer turn engineer studio owner same thing he has a huge collection of drums i just bring sticks and i'll tell him this is the sound we're going for today and he'll have the set that sound dialed up really quickly so that's to me that's an important part of what i do because like to get back to like session drumming versus playing live like for playing especially like the bigger the venue the less people can hear the nuances in your drum sounds like whereas on records the sounds are just as important as the, the as the parts yeah. So when I'm doing when I'm programming, I really like know my sounds and I put a lot of work into getting the sound, the right sounds dialed up for, for whatever track I'm doing. I'll spend more time getting the sounds together than I do program. I can program in my sleep, but it's really getting the sounds together. So, so that's with, something I, yeah. I'm sorry to, to, to interrupt yeah. you, but I think it's important for people to understand that if you want to be a good session player, you have to understand that the pace in which work is done is different yeah. than when you're jumping on stage getting sounds and then going and playing live oh very and, much so and you have yeah. to embrace that new way of working and also you're not going to get warmed up and just do you have to there's there's studio chops there's taking the time to get that snare drum dialed in finding the right symbol yeah yeah absolutely um i mean i you you said it, but and that's a skill set. To add to that, it it absolutely and um, but to go back to Wrecking Ball, like yeah. there was already like a really good sounding program kick and snare in the chorus and a crash um or some kind of like impact sound and um, so he's like I just want to add a little bit of air to it mm -hmm. so, and he had a big budget so he was like get me I want like bottom sounds but I'm going to tuck it into the mix so low that it's, it's the kind of thing where, and I, and I apply this when I'm doing production, like find that level when, when it's something like that, where if there's a certain part that you just want to kind of like sweeten the overall mix with, 
get it to the point where if you mute it, you notice it's gone. But when it's in the track, you don't yeah. necessarily notice it's there. And that's what my acoustic drums on Wrecking Ball are, are like. Yeah. But the fact they're still really low on the mix, but we spent so much time getting that sound dialed in. And I knew I wasn't going to be playing any toms, but we still set up full like 14, 16, 18, like bottom size toms, tune them wide open. And they, the whole kit kicks there and, and all three toms were tuned either to a root or fifth of Wrecking Ball. Wow. So when I just hit that kick and the snare, you hear the toms and the whole kit ringing in unison to the key of the song. Mm-hmm. So the, and it's, it's a subtle thing. But it, that shit makes a big difference. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. So that's a great example of, of, you know, this is kind of some of the work, the type of work that you're doing uh, yeah. on the acoustic kit and then yeah. the electronic kit. So a question I had about working with samples is yeah. because access to so many different sounds and how it can rob yeah. the creative process... I mean, yeah. how do you make decisions with your sample library and, and stay productive? It goes back to what I was talking about before about like fewer, better ingredients. Um, you also back cook, when right? I was, What's that? You also are a cook. I do, but I'll apply that to anything in my life. Like okay. with decorating where you live, um, picking out your wardrobe, um, Production, produ- production, uh, like mixing, production. Um, production is sound, mixing and producing at yes, the same time. Yes, that's the, when you haven't slept enough. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, when I'm producing, mixing, when I'm doing a drum part, it's like just fewer, better ingredients always makes the each ingredient counts more when there's less of them, but it's finding the right ones. And sometimes you need more than others, and other times you really don't need that much. But uh, it's with my sound i remember like back when i my first drum machine it was you had whatever sounds it came with it it was like it was like the poor man's lindrum when i was a kid because i didn't have five thousand dollars to which back then what's that i that's like a fifty thousand dollar drum machine oh my gosh but in the 80s like nobody who had five thousand dollars when you're like you know a teenager so i don't think my parents um, had five thousand dollars exactly yeah so (laughs) So I had this cheap Yamaha drum machine and it, it worked and it, it, I was getting my programming chops together while I'm in high school. And then a little later I got my first sampler and I used my, I used an advance from my first touring gig to, to buy a drum cat and a Casio sampler because it was, I couldn't afford like the best Akai sampler at the time. And then I got my first MPC and when I got the MPC, that's when I started going crazy with sample libraries and like trading with friends and then like just sampling shit from records. Yeah. And um, and then before I knew it, I just had this massive library of sounds. And now fast forward to today where you can go on Splice and there's thousands of kicks, thousands of snares. And yeah. It's just overkill. And so what I do is I go through my, I have a thumb drive and it's also like on all my, like my main programming drive and I have it in the cloud so I can download it wherever I am if okay. I, if I, if I lose my thumb drive and it's just like one shot drum sounds. And that's, so when I'm programming, like, like I was talking about, I'll import samples, but I also use some, you know, if I'm programming acoustic drums, I'll use addictive drums and I'll use some other things like for percussion, I'll use some battery stuff. But, uh, most of my like electronic stuff is all just like wave files. And, um, I just go through there every year and I'm like, okay, how can I trim the fat here? And I make subfolders. So okay. like I have my go-to folders, 
like I've gone through like the, you know, just for example, like I never liked Native Instruments Machine. I bought it when it first came out. But the library it comes with is great. It's a really useful library, all the drum one shots. So like I just went through, you know, each category, I went through them and I just have my best of Native Instruments snares, best of Native Instruments kicks. And then I combine that with all my other stuff. And then like once or twice a year, unless somebody hires me to do something and they want a specific sound that I don't have, I'll find it. And I got to say, like, I love that Splice exists now because it's really easy to find okay. things. That, their, um, their search engine still is not the shit yet, but it's good enough. You can find what you need. And um, But I'll, I'll buy, like, I buy new sample packs all the time, even if I just get, like, one sound. If I spent, like, and they're cheaper and cheaper. So if I spend, like, 25 bucks on on like a new like one shot sample pack whether it's electronic sounds or like breakbeat sounds whatever if i get one usable sound out of that it pays for itself okay like again and again so i just i'm constantly updating my stuff and i'm also constantly like trimming the fat so and um it's not like i will like just delete folders but i will constantly update my go-to folders and like just thin those out and then if I add one or two sounds, I'll say, what am I not using here? That's like not as, you know, because how many, you know, how many hand clap samples does one person need? And how many, it's like, I have my punchy kicks. I have my like boomy kicks. Yeah. I have my sub kicks. And then, you know, it's the same thing. Like whatever category, I just try and find like the most useful shit that I find myself going to again and again. Let me ask you, uh, are there some ways to create when you're programming, uh, mm-hmm. is there? Is, can you cite examples of ways to create an emotional reaction in the in programming that 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 is inherently yeah. sterile? Um, yeah. that resonates with the people you're working for. Um, Are you doing any time? Like I know you say you could do this without listening, but then you then you're mixing yeah. and then you're tuning. Oh yeah, I I think I know what you're saying. Like I mean, I will even though I don't use an MPC anymore. Like all swing now today is based on MPC swing. So I don't know if you've ever worked with an MPC, but it's 50% is no swing. 75% is a hard triplet swing. Yeah. And the sweet spots are usually somewhere in between there. And, and so uh, hidden, most like DAWs have it, have something like that now. I and, use and Logic Tools, and Logic has yeah, that. And then you can create it, yeah. your own swing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so Pro Tools has their own swing, but they also have in their there's a sub menu in their quantize window that says MPC like it's 51 to 75. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, I'll swing stuff. I will nudge stuff like late or early. I will add like distortion to stuff. I'll, I, I will like really tweak the sounds and I'll, I'll blend stuff in. And sometimes like I might have like a really, like I'll start off with like more sounds than I need, like to to lay. Rarely will it just be a single kick. It's usually like a a, a layer of like two or three things. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Um, at least for like modern popular stuff. Yeah. And then, but I'll start off with more than I need, and I'll I'll audition them, and then I'll start like just playing like two or three at a time and see which like which ones have that magic blend. Yeah. And then there might be one that it it's like not necessarily a good sounding kick or snare or whatever, but it's um it's a sample. Like I got it from an old record that everybody knows, mm-hmm. but and 
you know, the legalities of this are questionable, but if it's just a slice, it's just like a less than a, it's a millisecond, you know, or a few milliseconds, it's less than a second. And it's buried in there. Yeah. It's like that ear candy that people will, they'll just, there's something that'll hit them somehow because everybody has an emotional connection to that record that, 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 that yeah, sample yeah, is from. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll do things like that. I add, I'll add rhythmic like air. Like I'll, I'll take like white noise and then chop it up and like quantize it and swing it or nudge it. And, and it's, it's, you don't notice it, but if you mute it, you notice it's gone, but it just kind of adds something because when you have a real drum set in a room, there is air moving, unless it's really dead, there's going to be some air moving. And when you, and there's sympathetic vibrations between you hit one drum, they all kind of ring the cymbals ring. Everything's making noise. Yeah. And when you're programming, everything's sterile. Yes. And until the technology exists where you can model like, you know, like sympathetic vibrations between sounds, and I'm sure they'll get there eventually, but it doesn't exist yet. So I will do things like add air, add white noise, or like I'll um, take a percussion part that is not even the right part for the song, but it feels good. And then I'll like just like make it unrecognizable through EQ and adding distortion and like whatever, or mess with the transient. So it doesn't sound like that percussion instrument anymore. Now it just sounds like kind of this like humming rumble, but it's got a groove to it. And it's like buried in the track. And it's whatever rhythm I'm doing with it, it's it's going to be in the right, con- it's going to be the right thing for the context that it's in. So, so almost I'll, like that I'll, floor tom yeah. that's vibrating when you're playing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I try to bring that kind of feeling to the stuff I'm programming. When, when it's called for, there's some things where it's just, it's going to take up too much space where it really needs to be minimal. And if it is a track where I'm adding that stuff, I also know when do I drop this stuff out? And that's the stuff I learned from like producing and remixing, which is how effective space can be in contrast to when everything's full. Um, So yeah. Yeah. Learn. That's something I recommend to to every drummer. And I said it before is like, learn to do non-drum shit, musical non-drum shit. And, um, right. or not like not even musical, like go watch a movie and like, look how you're talking about drama. Like, look, oh, yeah. how, like it's the same thing as a song. You know, you have like your, in, your introduction to things. You have like the, you know, tension and release. You have the climax. And, um, you, you know, an, an interesting yeah. thing as, as, as people are talking about composing and doing more in, in the variety of types of com- composing that's available, not just songwriting, not just movie score, but, uh, TV sample libraries, different things like that. I, I found myself watching reality TV from time to time and dialing into the to the music that's going on and like how that is being arranged, yeah. you know, by somebody that's good at it. Um, yeah. Let me ask you one thing about when, because a part of that, your answer to that question in in, in you know getting a visceral reaction or or. or making something that it could be sterile less sterile and is your uh not only is are you using your rhythmic intuition and with your experience as a drummer which i think overall makes us better programmers than keyboard players yeah uh yeah. but also you're talking about things dialing in sonically uh to get that reaction as well and so what are you listening to this stuff on? Because I know that your your uh, rig right now at home is yeah. is is bare bones, but 
I mean, are you like, man, I got to use these headphones. I'm using no. open face. I'm using speakers. No. What are you using? I mean, it's funny. People will send me stuff to, to reference stuff. I just listen to my phone on the phone speaker. And it's like, I can get an idea of that if I need, if I want to hear the, if there's sub bass in it, then I'll like play it through real speaker or headphones. But okay. when I'm working, I, um, right now I have a little more room here. And so I have a pair of Genelec, um, 8020s and you know, they, they're not going to give me that full, like low end. Like I have a, a set of Mackie eight, A24s in New York. Okay. Um, but they don't, those are great, but they're not really accurate. Like they, they give you a false sense of what the low end is and they sound too good. So, um, so these gentle X, they just, they're really just transparent sounding and like they give me like a realistic sonic view of like the musical landscape okay and if i'm programming like a trap thing where i have to program like a like a, a like a, a lot of like 808 kicks that are really playing a bass part because they're tuned like i'll use something called sub boom bass for that and um i can still hear the notes on my speakers but i'm not getting that full rumble so but I'm generally not mixing this stuff. So I know when it's kind of close. Okay. And I'll know if I need to put like a Waves R bass on it, Renaissance bass, to give it that, to really pull out like the, just like the, the harmonic sweet spots of those like sub, like 808 tones. Interesting. Um, and I can still hear what I need to. And before I, before I moved into this place with my girlfriend, like at the beginning of the pandemic, I was staying, I, we didn't, we didn't know how long it was going to last. And she could, she was still working because mm. she's not in music. Um, she was still working. So she, she couldn't leave LA. And so I was like, fuck it. I'll just, I'll fly to, I'll fly to LA. I can just program on my laptop at her yeah. place. But there was so little room. I used some 8010s, which are the smallest Genelec speakers, but they were fine for what I needed to do. And I did so many records just for the, the first like year and a half of the pandemic where things were still mostly locked down. Um, and it works fine. I, if I need to reference something with headphones, I, I don't have any like high end, like my friends who are like great mixers, they, they have much more high end like headphones that I'll do reference okay, mixing on. Okay. But, I just have like hundred dollars sure headphones. I don't even remember the model. Like, <laughs> I'm just fine. I'm just thinking because because yeah. you're you're layering things and 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 you're being hired yeah. for your intuition yeah. of this stuff. But I, it sounds oh, like well, your experience is, is putting all that it, in place. It's it, yeah. It's kind of like you just you know like at this point I know what I'm doing. So it's like I can I I know what sounds are supposed to sound like. And but I mean if I'm doing something. Like you asked for something in the last couple of years. There's a an Alicia Keys record that uh called Underdog that came out in I guess 2020, maybe maybe 2021. And I had worked on it in 2018 or 2019. Wow. And every time she does a record, like in between tours, it can be like a year or two where she's just recording a hundred songs and she has a studio in New York, Jungle City. Um, that is she I think hers is called The Oven. It's basically two floors, but it's like the main one is Jungle City and Mincielli, who's her longtime engineer and a co-producer on a lot of stuff. They have a great collection of drums, but um, I worked on the same song a year apart. The first time, Alicia wasn't even there, the producer, and I, uh, John, 
I forget his last name, but he's in that band Snow Patrol. Yeah. And uh, he's a big writer and producer. So it was him and an engineer and somebody else who was a programmer he worked with. And they had me playing live drums and percussion. Forgot all about that song. A year later, um, Anne calls me and she's like, hey, Alicia has a song. We want to have you add some programming to it. And I sit down. I was like, I think I worked on this song a year ago. She's like, yeah, this song has passed through so many hands since then. And... And I programmed on it, but I was working on their rig. So I was, you know, and, you know, it's a state of the art, huge desk. And like, I don't even remember what kind of speaker monitors they have, like near field and like the big wall ones. But it, you know, I could hear everything on that. I remember like mousing all my stuff in. I was like, I don't think I did any MIDI on it. I think I just, I brought my thumb drive. I imported my sounds. I flew stuff around. And then I remember the record came out and um, Ash Sohn, DM me he's like hey man I, I like did you do some programming on the song underdog I said yeah I, I programmed it like and then a year before I played some drums and percussion but I have no idea because at the by the time it comes out like all the drums are squashed yeah and yeah, yeah. Um, he said well I just saw the credits and like we're both on it and at some point one of the producers who worked on it had sent it to Ash and he is his home studio and like outside of London where he the, the windmill where he did his stuff sure and the thing is the only thing that I can identify that I know is me is like like the finger snaps and like I have this reverse thing where I'll create a reverse snap going into the snaps. I was like, okay, that's me. But as far as like the kicks and the snares and like the shakers, that could have been Ash. It could have been me. It could have been one of the three other people that are listed as programmers. Yeah. Who knows? Because these are those are those sounds are at, by the end of the day are they're just kind of basic sounds. Mm -hmm. So like. Are those my 808 hand claps or somebody else's 808? Like it's not like an identifiable thing. So, um, but yeah, so that's that's the kind of thing. But yeah, that was touching upon a few things. One, like I'm working in a state of the art studio and I'm hearing everything I'm doing on great speakers. But I also do tons of remote shit where I'm doing everything on these speakers. I just mixed a record that just came out 9/11 uh, on the anniversary. It came out Sunday. Um, and I mixed it here on these speakers. So, okay. Um, I'm actually, I'm I, the production was in 2015. I mixed it on my Mackies in New York, but that they shelved it. And then I heard from the artist or the label and they're like, hey, they, they want to release this now as a one-off. Can you check it out? I, fortunately, I had a backup drive because the main drive is in New York. I found it. I tweaked the mix on these little Gentle X and it was fine. But I, and I was like, maybe I should plug in headphones. And I'm like, fuck it. I know how I know what it sounds like. That's cool. I can hear everything I need to hear. Yeah. yeah. So, and do you do anything special to stay current with what's happening? I mean, because yeah, I mean, especially with the style that you're working in. Yeah, so um, I go through whether I want to or not. I will go through Apple Music. Yeah. I just like using Apple instead of Spotify. Um, I'll just browse like the new music every like however many weeks or so. I will. Just go through like the top hundred, like hot one hundred, whatever their I don't I forget what they call their charts on Apple, but like whatever their version of the hot one hundred is, I'll just go down and I'll listen to shit. And if something stands out as like, okay, this is different, I'll add it to a playlist. Okay. And um I also like I watch a lot of like original series on TV. So I sh I Shazam stuff all the time. Oh and that's how yeah. I'll discover cool new shit. Like um um and then like my girlfriend listens to a lot. She's 20 years younger than me. So she listens to very different music than I, and she's also not a musician. And like, she likes stuff 
there is some crossover with our taste in music, but mostly like we don't like the same stuff. But I also, I don't listen to music a lot when I'm not working other than research. You know, but it's so, interesting that listen- the fact that she's not a musician, that gives you insight. I, I, I feel like musicians yeah. are the worst at picking out yeah. Like, this is badass. People will love... No, they won't because yeah. you're thinking like a musician. Yes, we're going to yeah. love it. <laughs> oh, no. Like, when I'm working on stuff, she'll be like, yeah, that song's annoying. Can I? Can you turn it down? And then other stuff, like, she'll be like, that's really cool. Who is that? I I would download that. Like, or not... Or I would, like, add it to, you know, like, yeah. I'd, I'd yeah. stream it. So, um, but I get a lot of stuff from TV. She got me into the TV show Euphoria because, like, I remember when it first came out, I thought it was like a high school musical type thing and I had no interest in that. And then she started watching it the first season during the pandemic and she was like, you're going to trust me, you're going to love the show. So I finally gave it a shot and the music's really cool on it. And so every episode I would download some of the, st- it's most, it's a combination of this guy. Um, what's his name? Sorry. When I, when I'm sleep deprived, like I can't remember names. Um, Labyrinth. He's he's a, a big electronic artist and producer in his own right. So okay. he's the, he does the original score and his shit's really cool, very uniquely him. And then they also license a lot of like old old cool like old like R and B tracks and then like modern like up to date like hip hop and EDM and whatever mm-hmm. and pop. Mm-hmm. And so every episode I was shazamming shit because there's whoever their music supervisor is has a great ear. So that's, that's I got a like and then like. That came around full circle when um, last, I don't know how many months ago, I was in New York and I got a call from an old friend who is head of A&R at Columbia Records. And um, Labyrinth is signed to Columbia and they were releasing the soundtrack to the second season of Euphoria. And they're like, do you remember? She's like, there's a song. I was like, I know exactly the song. I actually shazammed it because it was like the closing credits for the season finale. And she's, yeah, she was like, you probably noticed there's not much in the way of drums or any kind of rhythm in that. And like rhythm radio won't play it. So we need like a, some kind of remix. Do you want to do it? And like I told my girlfriend and she freaked out because it's her favorite show. And, um, and so, yeah, but like the good thing was like she started telling me about the song. I was like, I already know it. And, and like because like I said, that's how I stay current. I watch. I watch a lot of like the cooler TV shows, you know, like yeah. just, and uh, that kind of started for me with like the Sopranos. Like, um, oh yeah, I remember, and that that was before Shazam existed. But like, at least I think, what year was the Sopranos? When it, I don't remember when it started, but like I think the the a, a very early version of the internet was there, mm-hmm. where I could at least like google some lyrics and then find out what the music was yeah. and then just go buy it because there it was before you could download a lot of shit but um yeah i find the music supervisors working on like original like hbo and netflix and like hulu all these original like series those are the those are like a lot of those people are picking out the coolest shit so i i well, I, I basically pay, I, it's all a tax write off but i yeah. like subscribe to every like video streaming service and if like something's getting and also my girl my girlfriend's like an influencer so she she's really good with social media and is always giving me shit because i don't do and i do the bad like i'll post maybe once a month on instagram and um yeah but she's on there like every day and wow. she's she'll like forward me stories and I, and like i'll hear cool music and and just like or tiktok she'll forward me tiktok shit 
Mm-hmm. And like, I'll pay attention to that stuff. And, and if I'm seeing like a series that that's not on my radar, that's getting like a lot of like just buzz on social media, I'll check it out. And more often than not, whether I like the series or not, there's some cool music shit that I need to be aware of. It's so. interesting. I, I, I feel like there's lots, if you think about it, there's lots of ways to discover new music or stay current without feeling like I'm under the gun, I have to produce this track or I have to record yeah. drums or a type of percussion. I did something for, yeah. a, uh, uh, for a songwriter overseas and it was a hip hop thing, and it, and and I said, well, what are you looking for? He goes, well, just listen to the most current thing. So like, I had to scramble to try and figure out where I, I think there's ways to do it naturally. So it could be, you know, um, through your spouse or your partner, yeah. or uh, I've got I've got uh, I've got teenagers. So like, yeah, you said you have a seventeen year old. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so like, they're turning yeah. me on to stuff. They're even turning me on to stuff like old school stuff that I, yeah. I, I missed, um, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and, and, and so the, and stuff on TV and I think it's around us all the time. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a chore to all of a sudden go yeah. and do like, man, just keep your ears open to what's happening. If, if, you know, if, because you're like, well, I don't, I'm not a producer or I'm not going to program beats or I'm not going to do, or I'm not going to, I'm not an engineer, but it's like, no, no, no. You, but if, if you're just simply playing drums yeah. and you get called for a session, uh, it's going to be, you need to have a knowledge of not only history and styles yeah. of music, that's easy to say, mm-hmm. but also yeah. kind of like what kind of snare sounds are being you know that that people are gravitating towards it's like yeah uh, you know we we went through the 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 90s you can you can tap into that and then now we've got the big fat snare drum we've got that that kind of thing the thuddy thing yeah and and there's stuff that that just never goes away there's stuff that's been standard that 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 has just stayed true but even even the big fat snare thing that's an old school sound like that was really popular and like um certain iconic records that was the vibe and like yeah and um, yeah, and like Big Fat Snare, like that was a brilliant idea. I mean, the thing is, people were doing that with just turning over snare heads and putting it, taking like a, a snare head by itself, flipping it and putting it on top yeah. of it. And but this is way more convenient. And um, right. I'm still more like, I just for me, it's like there's I don't use a wallet, so but. Um, if I'm at a studio and I want the wallet sound, if the engineer has a wallet, I'll use their wallet. Um, but more often than not, I'm just like duct tape and paper towels, like between like having a drum key, a good ear. I learned how to tune drums really early. I am astonished when I meet a professional drummer who doesn't know how to tune their own drums and they're out there. But, um, but yeah. And, um, just duct tape, gaff tape, paper towels. I, there's a company called flow sonic artisanal that just kind of makes their own take on, on like tape and tea towels and stuff that's um, they're on Instagram now. And, but it's, it's essentially like if you don't want to use the snare weight or you don't want to use like drum dots or yeah. moon gels, I hate moon gels cause they just leave this horrible residue after a while. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, I just, you, yeah, for me, if I want a thuddy sound, I, I start with the right snare, tune it down. There you go. Paper, roll up the paper towel, throw some tape on it. Yeah. And um, yeah. But so. I, one of the things I wanted to talk to you just while I've got you is uh, we've, over the last couple of years, um, as I've gotten older and dealt with repetitive stress injuries 
and been working uh, through that. I've got a personal trainer I've been working with who's a drummer who had an accident. Uh, He was on a bike and was hit by a a van and destroyed his shoulder. He worked through that. I know you have a similar story. I got hit by, yeah, uh, an electric bike in New York last summer, broke my elbow. Yeah. That was rough. You also have a story of just a, a, a early oh, on. Oh, just in general, early on, repetitive stress injuries. Repetitive yeah. stress injury. And uh, we've had, uh, we've become friends with Dave Elich, uh, my co-host, and yeah. I both have taken lessons from him. So this is a lot. I'm, 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 I'm asking you to drink, drink from a fire hose right here. Uh, but I would love for you to, to talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the stuff that you dealt with when you were at Berkeley, I know. So to summarize, um, at, at Berkeley back in the day, you were lugging drums around from place to place, rehearsing, playing gigs, playing, yeah. eating like shit, playing all the yeah. time and just all that yeah. getting to the point where you just at a very early age were like, I can't play anymore. What, what the hell? Yeah. That well, that scared the shit out of me because my whole and this this touches more on me- not just physical health but mental health. I yes. grew up depressed. Yes, and it was before you talked about that stuff, or yeah. I didn't even know I was depressed because I was from such an early age. I didn't know there was a, a, another way to feel. So and please, um, please, I love this. I love yeah, this. You had yeah. a great podcast on on Drumio Gab. It oh, was, we talked about that. Yeah, it was I. It was amazing. I, I, if yeah, you, you if you feel yeah, comfortable yeah. talking about yeah, that, I feel I'm like totally, those things yeah. are so connected. Yeah. yeah. So I basically it was kind of a a mixed blessing, you know, or a double, whatever you know term you want to use. Like it, not that I wish depression on anybody, but it it made me it fueled me working on music so hard i i always wonder if i had had like a happier childhood would i i have practiced 12 hours a day would have i have lost myself in just doing that deep dive into music and prop maybe but maybe not as much and maybe i would have had a more balanced life Mm -hmm. Um, but i also feel like as you go through life everybody kind of life's going to like bring you what you need whatever decade of your life you know what I mean? Like there's stuff that I'm getting together now in my 50s that a lot of people had together because they grew up in a less dysfunctional family. They got those parts of themselves developed when they were like 10, 20 years old. Um, on the other hand, by the time, like I said, by the time I'm 20, I'm touring with a major label artist. I got a Zildjian endorsement. I'm seeing the world like um, I wasn't really a drugs guy, but like sex and music, like got all that shit out of the way pretty young. And, but like, I didn't know how to be in a family. I didn't know, like my interpersonal shit was not together. My emotional intelligence was stunted. My communication skills were stunted. Um, um, I lacked a certain level of presence and Mm self-awareness. I I had really overdeveloped certain parts of myself and underdeveloped others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but it's like I said, like later in life, I just kind of, after my second divorce, that's really when I when I think I talked about this on the podcast, like I knew it was time to really deal with, with my, my mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and in the meantime, like I had changed my diet when I was 20, I guess. Yeah. I was, I think I was like 19 when I like all that shit at me at Berkeley where like all of a sudden I couldn't play anymore. And I went to this, uh, holistic guy before that was kind of like popular 
And the first thing he said was, what do you eat? And I was like, what does that have to do with anything? And he was like, diets, everything. And so it was cool. All the stuff that's trending now, I got into back then in the late 80s. Cut out sugar, dairy, red meat, like like processed foods and learned more about nutrition, started taking better care of myself. But are you able to keep that up? Are you still doing that? Oh, yeah. I mean, to a fault. Like, I remember when I was in therapy, my therapist was like, you need to loosen up with that. Like, live a little bit. Like, ha- have some sugar now and then. But, um, yeah. yeah. So, um, but there was always a mystery as to why I was getting so many repetitive stress injuries. Like, that guy, his name was Richard Zukowski, and he passed recently. He, um, he helped me. He helped uh, John Medeski, Dave Fusinski, mm. Steve Jenkins, a lot of like musicians that were in Boston at one time or another. He helped us all. And um, he got me to the point where like, I went from being told by a sports doctor, you'll never play drums again, find another like career path, to like within six months, like I'm on the road. And um, so, but I was, my touring life was brutal. I was in so much pain all the time mm. and nobody could figure it out. So doctors were like, yeah, it's, it's fibromyalgia, but like, that's just a blanket term for just neuromuscular issues or muscular, musculoskeletal, muscular, I don't know how to say that word, but um, my shit was just always fucked up. And that's how it you say was, it. yes, your shit's <laughs> fucked up. So, um, so yeah. And nobody could figure it out. And it wasn't until I got into therapy, like um, I started therapy, like dabbling in it in my late 30s. And I I naively thought like, I'll do like a few months of therapy and I'll be cured. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that led to years of work and then finding like the right therapist and the therapist that I did a lot of work with that in my 40s, Ricardo Castaneda, who also, he was one of the first people in New York to die of COVID. And, um, but he helped a lot of people and he was instrumental in me really kind of just like rewiring my mind. And, um, and as, if you know Elitch, you'll know, like, like your mind and your body are just connected. They're, they're like the, the more I work on this stuff and learn about this stuff. And I talked about this on, on Drumio Gab. Um, I, um, I shed this stuff every day. Like I used to shed stick control and accents and rebounds. Now I shed, I journal. I am constantly like doing audiobooks. I used to, before audiobooks, I was reading um, about neuroscience or communication or um, you name it. Anything that has to do with like your emotional like well being, I am studying that stuff. And mm-hmm. like the deeper I get into that, the more, I, especially with the neuroscience aspect, it's like, your your physical health and mental health are really like they're one and the same and yeah, um yeah so when i finally got an answer as to why my my muscles are always slightly contracted like healthy muscles contract and release mine were always slightly contracted mm-hmm. and massage therapists and acupuncturists would point that out they'd say you're like your muscles feel like you have fibromyalgia like like they don't have that like spongy quality you want or fluid quality mm-hmm. um and so, like any professional drummer, if you overdo it, you're going to damage yourself. But like, even if I was doing like just a normal pace of things, I was still always getting tendonitis and my back was always going out. And uh, it was because my, my muscles were always slightly locked. And when I learned about um, the sympathetic nervous system and like your fight or flight response from the time I was really young, I, because of the atmosphere I grew up in, I was constantly in fight or flight. And that... Our, that part of our, our 
the nervous system is not supposed to be active all the time. It's only extreme circumstances. But if it's always on, especially when you're young, like a young nervous system, after a while, like my body was just used to being flooded with cortisol. And so yeah. as a result, my muscles are always tense. And it's, I wasn't even aware I'd been living my whole life like that. But when I got into therapy, I figured that out with the help of that therapist. And he, he broke down the neuroscience of it because he was a psychiatrist and a neurologist and a psychopharmacologist. So he'd break it down from the emotional aspect, the chemical aspect, like how my nervous system works. And he... He he was very conservative with prescribing meds, and okay. he was like, if like his his thing is like you can hack your nervous system, you can rewire all your stuff, and I, so I was able to like beat you know lifelong depression without meds, but it took a lot of work to do that. I really had to retrain everything about my mind. And, what were um, what were some of the things that you were doing? I, I, you mentioned meditation um, was yeah, meditation, journaling, and also just uh, self awareness. It's like. Mm. And that's a complicated thing because like we don't know what we're not aware of until we become aware of it. And it's, it's like one of those Zen questions, like how do you, how, how do you do that? And, um, and that goes back to a drumming thing when I, there was a guy named Ed Uribe who was a great Berkeley drum teacher when I was there. And, uh, I remember when I started working in Boston, I, um, I was playing with this it was like all the like the best players at the time playing like I guess you'd call it smooth jazz now, but we were playing these nightclubs and all the up tempo stuff and mid stuff, mid tempo stuff. I felt really great at and like that was in like I was really good at that stuff just because that was my background. Like in high school, I was in a fusion band and I was in like an R and B band and yeah. like a funk R and B band. So. I felt really comfortable doing that. But the one thing I didn't have is like, we would do an instrumental cover of a Luther Bandros ballad and he would call it off really like a really slow tempo. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I was like this, like I just felt like an idiot. I was like, I can't do this. Like I like faked my way through it, but I knew like it just didn't feel right. And I remember like I went to, and at that point I already had a lot of chops by the time I got to Berkeley, I was there for more playing experience. Yeah. And, um, but I was taking lessons with Ed and really he just basically showed me all the Latin shit that I, that I know he kind of helped me refine all that because that was like his specialty, but we would also just do a lot of conceptual talking. And so I was like, Hey man, how do I learn how to like feet, like be in the pocket at a really slow tempo? And he just laughed and he's like, you just got to feel it. And I was like, I know, but give me like the secrets. And he he was like, you just got to feel it. And it's like, and I was aware of, yeah, I can subdivide in my mind and count like 30 second notes. You know, that's how slow it was. I could count 30 second notes and still, but I was like, but that's not going to make me feel it. You know, that's just going to kind of keep, keep me like locked into a certain tempo. But I was like, how does it feel good? And he just laughed. He said, you'll get, you'll get it when you get it. And I remembered like every week we'd be playing a few nights a week and finally it just something clicked Mm. and then i was like oh i'm feeling it now and then ever since then it's just like that's part of me and it's the same thing with like self-awareness like how do you become more present like especially when you don't even know i didn't even realize i wasn't present for so much of my life and like really interesting that all sounds like nonsense to somebody who you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like Mm -hmm. before you get into it but once you get into it it's like all right so a lot of that was just um, a lot of trial and error and a lot of just kind of like learning to be still 
and like stop doing the stuff that I would usually do to distract myself, which when I was a kid was practicing and transcribing and like gigging and, you know, all that stuff. So it was more like, how do I just learn to just be still and be comfortable with just like spaces yeah, and, yeah. Um, and not do whatever it is that I was doing to, to distract myself or stay busy. And well, one of the things you guys talk about, which I found, found really fascinating and, and something yeah. that I've found myself falling into is staying busy and distracting yeah. yourself as, uh, you know, some people it's, it's, there's addictions and we think, oh, yeah. it's alcohol, it's drugs, it's this and that. It's like, no, there's other forms of addiction. Anything can be addictive. Anything can yeah. be addictive and can, uh, steer you away from yeah. addressing the real issues. And one of them yeah. is staying busy and, and, and like, we're thinking, man, I'm, I'm practicing, I'm working, I'm doing this, I'm yeah. busy, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm gigging and I'm mowing the lawn and I'm producing a podcast. And it's like, yeah. well, what are you doing? Why? And yeah. and and one yeah. thing that I'm having a, that that's been a challenge for me recently. And what 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 what, what yeah. a light bulb went on with me as 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 I'm feeling there there's relationships in my life like my mm-hmm. spouse that yeah. needs attention and needs for me to slow down. Yeah, and uh, and 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 so often we get caught up with I have to I have to do this I have to it's the responsible thing to do I, I'm adulting yeah. I'm adulting I'm doing this I'm doing yeah. that and it's like, dude, you're not taking care of yourself. Yeah, and so a lot, yeah, a lot of it is just like slowing down. Like, it doesn't Elitch have a shirt that says like slow down or yeah. something yeah, something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, and so and like that's how Elitch and I became friends. Like, I eventually took a lesson with him after knowing him for years. Yeah, could you talk um, about that? I love that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, but um, it's like we bonded over talking about therapy and like just the mental health stuff. And we turned out we read a lot of the same books. And if if there was a book he hadn't read, I'd recommend it and vice versa. He's the one that got me into Audible because I wasn't doing Audible. Audible. Okay. I was doing I was paperless at that point and just reading Kindle books on my phone. But uh, he got me into Audible and um. But yeah, what he didn't really, all we got into was he just spent the most time. He did show me something with bass drum pedal technique, which he and I will never really see eye to eye on that because digging your beater into the kick is a sonic thing. It's, it's a specific sound that a lot, I know a lot of his favorite drummers do it, but I also reckon, I know that like, yeah, the drum is not going to resonate fully when you're doing that, but do you want, I mean, look, dampening a snare drum is a big, like, not letting things resonate fully is part of that's a whole other discussion but yeah um with transients and all that which i think i touched upon transients earlier with programming but um but what he did show me which was invaluable was he he was just like relax your right leg you know he moved the floor tom away and he just he got down and he was like on the ground and he was like relax your leg i'm like it is relaxed he's like no it's not and he's like i know it relaxed he was like i need dead weight and it was the same thing. Like I, I had worked on other par- areas of my body where I knew I was holding tension in my neck and my back. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I worked with this acupuncturist and he said, you know, you have scoliosis, which I'd learned about when I was really young. Not extreme, but there's a little S in my spine. But it was totally because I was always sitting in a drum set reading music when I, from the time I was a kid. I wasn't stretching and because my muscles were always holding tension as I went through my growth spurt, like my, my musculature just formed to that shape and it kind of bent my spine out of shape. And this acupuncturist, Luke Hamilton, anybody who's in New York, he's an incredibly good, he's like the Steve Gadd of body workers. He just has that gift. He, um, he, like I tore my shoulder, he healed that in a couple sessions. He, um, 
he was like, I can make you taller. He said, you should be like at least three inches taller because your spine's not straight. Mm -hmm. And in about two years of doing like weekly acupuncture sessions, I was in it all before, without realizing it, I was an inch tall. I gained an inch in my forties and, and it's, I'm still curved, but it's like better than it was. I mean, I feel like it's, it's like kind of like going in the other direction since the pandemic started because I haven't gotten that much body work done since the pandemic started. But, um, um, but yeah, um, Working with that guy, Luke Hamilton, I became more aware of areas to, to relax. But like Elich made me aware of like just like more subtle, deeper levels of tension in parts of my body. I wasn't even aware of, especially my lower body. I was always focusing on my upper body. And um, so, yeah, Elich got me to like just being aware. And he, he got me just and it was most of the time we spent. He just got me to like be able to find an awareness of this part of like my lower leg where I was holding tension and he finally got it to like ease up Mm -hmm. and it's a and I had never felt my leg without tension there ever like you know and I'm at this point I'm in my 50s and like as soon as like the muscle released my eyes started tearing up and it and I don't know if you've, if you've ever been to a body worker and they say, I'm yeah. going to work on certain muscles and you might have a weird and inexplicable emotional reaction, but it's because we do store emotional trauma yeah. like in our bodies. So, um, yeah, he just got something to release. But I mean, the history of my, my tension of the fibromyalgia, all that tension was growing up in a really unsafe environment. Yeah. And so, and when you're a kid, like I shut down, like people, when, by the time I was in my early teens, all my friends' parents thought I was like using drugs and the irony was all my friends were getting high. I wasn't, I just looked like I was high because I was so withdrawn emotionally. Like, mm-hmm. and that was a response to, to early trauma. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, that was what Elitch showed me was like to just become more aware of the places I'm holding tension. And, um, and, uh. So to go b- back to what you're talking about with um, how do you do that? Like, yeah, um, yeah you, you just have to, it's every time I think I've learned, like I've kind of mastered like some something. It's the same thing with music. Like every time I feel like I've mastered playing a certain thing on the drums, years later, it's like most of the shit I play on records now is stuff that I could play when I was like seven, eight years old. The <laughs> difference is like now when I'm playing it, there's a lot more depth to it. And I know why I'm playing it, where I'm playing it. And I know when to do it and when not to do it. I know when to rest. Um, when I was seven or eight, it's because that's all I was capable of playing. And then I don't regret the years after that when I learned all like the really nuanced shit. That right. stuff still is important to have for certain gigs. But uh, um, it's just about like you, you, you grow. And if you're really about paying attention to yourself, and paying attention to everything, like you start to get like, I don't know, it's like the equivalent of, you, you know, like there's like basic education and high school and then you can get like college and master's PhD and then beyond, whatever's beyond that. It's the same thing with drumming. It's like, okay, I may have think I've mastered this, but there's, there's a deeper level of understanding to, to this. Like my press role, is it good? Is it the best it could be? And, and it's the same thing with like self-awareness. Yeah. Like every time I think I've gotten it together and, you know, so you, you mentioned a spouse, like relationships are the best context to really learn about yourself. Oh my gosh. Because, yes. yeah. So, um, and if you're with the right person, you guys are going to, 
in the beginning have a sub, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Getting the Love You Want, but it breaks all this yeah. down. It's a great book for anybody single or in a relationship, I think should read it. Um, it just breaks down why, why we are attracting, we're like magnets and we are attracted to, and we attract people with corresponding, like unresolved, like mental health issues. And, oh, wow. and What's so the like, title when again? you find get, getting the love you want by Harville Hendricks. Okay. And that's one of those books I got into, like after my second divorce, because I was like, I am tired of these patterns in my relationships. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's also like nonviolent communication. It's a, like a, a great book about communicating better. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's, I've lost count of how many of these books I've done, but um, um, The Untethered Soul is a great one about just learning the art of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty short book. But, um, but yeah, Getting the Love You Want, it talks about like, you know, you could be in a room, let's say you have a type physically and like a type of attributes you're looking for, and they could put you in a room with... Um, for of like 20 people that match that description and so for me i could say like i like women with this complexion with long hair that like are into this and this and this and this and i could be in a room with like 20 women that match that description but there's gonna and you talk to all of them but there's gonna be one that you just kind of you get this like i know this person and yeah and the book is like that's your subconscious mind at work because our subconscious minds are really the part of our mind that does the most work it's the part of it's the part that like regulates our autonomic nervous system why our hearts beat even when we're sleeping like um it's all like the real intelligence in our bodies is going on on a subconscious level and also like all of our all of our patterns as people like that's all most of us until you become self-aware it's all subconscious motivations and it's, right. it's usually stuff that we developed as coping mechanisms you know you know you've done this work so you know this yeah. stuff but in relationships if you're with the right person you guys are going to trigger each other in a way that nobody else can Mm-hmm. And and then so a lot of couples just break up because of that, because they're like, it shouldn't be this hard. But cu- couples that are like, for whatever reason, saying, like, I am down to grow with you, then you use that. You, you take advantage of that. Like, yeah. say, like, you're triggering me and this is an area of myself that, like, I still haven't dealt with. So and then every time I think I've, like, done all, and I've done years of this work now, every time I think I've, like, mastered myself life will introduce something new to say no there's a deeper layer to like deal with there's there's still some like roots of this thing you need to like dig out and so like taking it back to my hands and my back so much of that stuff is tied into like holding tension and and like holding tension like i said it was a defense mechanism when i was a kid it was my emotional armor but then that emotional armor became a prison as i by the time i'm 20 or 19 or 20 yeah and so yeah and so, yeah, that's where I'm at now. Like, I've been depression-free, fortunately, for years now, but I still live with a lot of, like, unnecessary tension in my body, and it's be- much better than it was, but it's it's a very slow process. And, um, I feel like being a drummer, yeah. it, the, the physical, the emotional, uh, the artistic <laughs> yeah. side, the analytical side, um, yeah. it gives us this beautiful opportunity to explore these aspects of our lives that there's times I... Yeah. I, 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 I feel sorry for at times of other people that don't get to explore this, even other yeah. musicians that don't have the opportunity to make these connections uh, that we get to. And then we yeah. also, on top of that, have a community that is open to um, 
you know, communicate with each other and, and be open to Dr- each other. Yeah, drummers, yeah, drummers yeah. are more communal. There's less of that. I th- I've talked about this before, but like, uh, I think because drummers are like, we're the like the low man on low man on the totem pole of right, right, right. like musical hierarchy that we kind of we just bond and there's like this instant respect for each other. Yeah, it, so, it's it's ma- it's I don't it's yeah, made producing a podcast a lot yeah. easier. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah, and that's like that's how I became friends with Ulich. Like for most of my career, I wasn't paying attention to the drum community because none of my work came from drummers. It came from like right. managers, producers, engineers, sure. other musicians, artists. And so I was never really focused on the drum community. And then uh, it was the first podcast I did was I'd hit that. Yeah. And, um, and so when I did it, like I got a bunch of like messages on social media from like Brendan Buckley, like mm-hmm. Dave Elitch, like drummers, we knew of each other. And I'd even met Brendan years, years before when he was playing with Shakira. But um, like everybody's just so friendly and they were like, hey, I heard on the podcast that you're working in L.A. a lot now. Let me know when you're in L.A. or when I'm in New York, let's like meet up for coffee. And yeah, yeah it's it's like a very cool community. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I want to ask you one more question. Before sure. we wrap it up, yeah. is um, my wife and I are big Annie Lennox fans. Uh, Diva was one of those records that we wore out uh, a lot. And she lived overseas. She lived in China for a year, and she had like four or five CDs. This is back in the 90s, and that was one of them. And um, we actually had some of that playing at our wedding and stuff like that. And um, could you just tell me briefly, I mean, this is just me fanboy kind of geeking out just a little bit about your experience with her. Yeah. Well, that was my like first major pop gig. I, up until then I was mostly, I was doing like a list gigs, but they were in like the jazz world. And, yeah. um, so, and it's so, so people know Hiram Bullock yeah. was one of the first big gigs and yeah, Hiram was like my, yeah, my first gigs are my, I got 20% left on cool. Um, okay. So Hiram, but then like when I was playing with Grover Washington Jr., he was like headlining all the jazz festivals. Like, you know, I'd play the Hollywood Bowl every summer at the Playboy Jazz Festival. And like that was like, you know, good money, like really cool hangs. You know, Grover was the shit, great band members um, and a bunch of other artists in that world. But um, but um, Annie was. A friend of mine named Paul Pesco, who's not necessarily a household name, but if you Google him, his, his, his resume is astounding. He's a guitar player. And Paul had seen me play with, because my first gigs were with like guitar stars, Hiram Bullock, Larry Coriel, Tribal Tech with Scott Henderson on guitar. Cool. Um, sorry. Uh, Dave Fusinski, Screaming Headless Torsos, a guy named Jeff Lee Johnson, who was yeah. like an unsung guitar hero, but a lot of people like that. And so Paul, we met through like that world and Paul was, Paul can play anything. He's a very versatile guitarist, but he was like the man. He was like touring with Madonna, hmm. Stevie Winwood, everybody that was big when I was a kid, he was like playing with them. Like he played at Live Aid, like when he was really young. Oh and um, so, and we became friends and he, I was like, hey, man, if any if any gigs ever open up in that world, like, let me know. And he's like, yeah, of course. And like and then he called me while I was on another gig. I was at SIR, but it was a real I don't want to say the artist, but the politics were really fucked up hmm. and the money wasn't even good. But it was it was a gig that I wanted to be part of because I had friends in the band. And um, and this is in the days 1995 where like I had a pager with voicemail and I get a page and it's 
Paul and I call him from the payphone at SIR and he was like, hey, what's your availability? And he gives me some dates and I was like, I mean, I, I don't know. I was like, I can make myself available and can you tell me what it is? He's like, I'm not allowed to tell you what it is yet. And he said, but um, it's a really good thing. And I said, are you doing it? And he said, yeah. I said, if you're doing it, that's all I need to hear. I'm available. I will make myself available. And then I get a call from Bob Dallas. And that's, well, I feel like so many people I'm mentioning are dead. Bob died recently. Um, it was Bob Dallas, a tour manager. And he said, so I'm the tour manager for Annie Lennox. It was the Medusa record. She's got a new album coming out. And she was at her peak, I think, at that time as a mm-hmm. solo artist. Mm-hmm. And we're doing Saturday Night Live. We're doing... There's a bunch of cool shit. And, um, and at the time, she was just going to hire... She had Steve Lipson, her producer, who produced Steve and Medusa. Mm-hmm. Great producer. Uh, great musician. Is going to be MDing, but she's going to basically travel with him and Hef, the engineer, and pick up bands in different markets. So when she's in Europe, she's going to use one band in the UK, a different band. Wow. States and Canada, a different band. So originally, it was we were just going to be like the Canada and like the East Coast band, and she was going to hire different people for like when she's doing like the Grammys and the Tonight Show, the West Coast stuff. So originally, I think I was just contracted to do SNL and like Much Music, which is like a Canadian music network and some other stuff. And um, and he was like, so before you get the gig, Steve Lipson's going to call you, and he's going to want to talk to you, and. Yeah. And remember, I talked about like as soon as I made some money with Hiram, I used the advance on my first week of touring with him to buy a drum cat and like triggers and all that stuff. And right. um, so that's really what got me the gig. I mean, Paul re- recommending me counted for a lot. He was like, this guy's a great drummer. He can learn music really quickly, like looks cool, whatever it was that the criteria was like that. They, that mattered somewhat because Annie's a very visual person, too. And she was going to have a stylist styling the band. Wow. But um. For Steve, you know, those records, there's a lot of programming on those records. Yeah. Yeah. And um, really cool shit, too. Some live drums, but it's very much a blend. And um, so. I was surprised how much I love that record. Diva, uh, how much I love that record. Great. Uh, she's, she's an she's an incredible artist. She really yeah, is, yeah. and um, it's it's so much of that was lost on me when I was young because that was pre therapy when I wasn't very present, and I was just like in like mercenary mode, like gig to gig to gig to right, gig to right. gig. Yeah, and I I knew she was great, and like I got goosebumps goosebumps the first time we played Sweet Dreams because I had grown up on MTV watching the, the Eurythmics, and mm, um, fuck. wow, and I recognized she was just a badass because like off stage she is like very soft spoken, very like not very animated, just like a really chill, kind person. As soon as she steps, and she has horrible stage fright. Like backstage at the Grammys, I remember she looked like she was going to throw up, and 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 I was like, "Are you nervous?" Because we were on the same side of the stage, about to walk out, and she's like, "Yeah, I get horrible stage fright," and I said, "Still." This is after, you know, playing stadiums with the Eurythmics and it's like every gig. But as soon as she gets on stage and opens her mouth, like she, like an actress, she transforms into this other person and like she's so fierce and and so amazing. And that goes to this other, other thing of like, it's, it's not just technique. It's not just your instrument. Like it's why, why when Steve Jordan or Charlie Drayton just play a simple backbeat or Ferroni, it yeah. just feel, they could be playing the simplest shit, but it just you feel something in there, yeah. and that's what Annie has as a singer. It's just like there's some kind of presence that that just translates. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, anyway, Steve Lipson, he was like, "How are you at work at playing with the Click?" I'm like, "I do it all the time. I play with sequencers." And he was like, "How are you with MIDI? If I wanted you to trigger the kick and the snare and this, I was like, I got a drum cat. I have kick and snare triggers.'" 
And he was like, all right, I'll see you at rehearsals. And I got the gig with two phone calls. And then um, Annie liked the band, and then she made us the band for the entire promotional run for that record, including what was going to be a tour. Unfortunately, she was going through a divorce or about to. So they canceled most of the touring gigs. So we mostly just did TV around the world. And a hand. we did a show at Central Park, which was also like a, a video um, and a concert in Poland. We played some festival in Poland. And then all the rest of the gigs were canceled. But this is what a class actually was. They paid us oh. for the entire the entirety of the canceled tour dates. They paid us for everything. So I remember flying back from London with like a... And that's when like the pound was worth so much more than the dollar. So <laughs> oh my God. they paid me, they paid me in pounds and, and like they had it, they found me somewhere in London to um, switch it to dollars. And like, it was, I just remember ha- had like this big wad of catch and I was like, <laughs> how do I sneak this into the U S so I don't have to pay taxes on it. I just see you um, with like a briefcase with like dollar yes. bills just sticking <laughs> <Yes>. out. <laughs> yeah. And that's how cool they were. Like they, they were like, uh, <sighs> bad news. We're canceling the tour and he's dealing with the divorce and whatever. And, but, uh, but we're paying you. So come by the office and we'll pay, we'll cash you out oh, pounds of dollars. Yeah. I'm a bigger fan um, now. Yeah, and I didn't see her for a long time, and I ran into her like right before the pandemic. I was like I said, I rarely do gigs, but I did. A, it was just one song because I I played on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, singer Drea in New York, and uh, she told me she was like, "I'm singing at this." It was an awards thing for some fem- feminism organization. I forget what the name of it was, mm-hmm. and you know, Annie's a big like activist so she was being honored at this thing she's like annie's gonna be there so and i was like man i haven't seen annie in like 20 25 years like i wonder if she'll remember me yeah and bef- and like she was like oh annie's here you want to come say hi and before i could say anything like annie was like she was like hello mr wolf she was like i she was like and she made a joke about like not wanting to get an, on an elevator with me because she, i was there was an elevator that she and half the band got stuck in um, on one of our first gigs. And I had been like jumping up and down in the elevator and, uh, and they threw me off the elevator before the doors shut and then the elevator got stuck. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, she was, she was really cool. And um, like just as kind as I remembered and still sings her ass off. And um, that's so great, man. That's yeah. She's really cool. And it was, it was like my first time playing all those TV shows that I, you know, I'd always wanted to play on SNL. I've since gone on to like sub for Sean and the SNL band. And, right. But that was my first time playing on SNL, Letterman, The Tonight Show, The Grammys, it, and um, and also touring on that level, like five star hotels. We flew the Concorde, and like my the money was a huge. I was already making good money, but it was a big jump in money, and like mm-hmm. my endorsements suddenly got better, and that's, mm-hmm. and I started getting called for bigger sessions. I mentioned that earlier. Like yeah. all of a sudden. I, the first record that I played on that like won a Grammy and that went multi-platinum was Celine Dion. And I got, that was from somebody new of me from the Annie Lennox gig. So like that, that gig opened so many doors for me and really changed my career path. So Yeah. Yeah. And you think yeah. that, that kind of afforded you the opportunity to make a decision to consciously decide I'm done touring. I've got these yeah. other opportunities. Yeah. Well, I, well, it's also like that set the bar so high. So like, um, I always said if she went back out, I would do a tour with her. But like, mm-hmm. but by the time she went, and I got a call about doing it, but by that time, Steve was no longer MDing her and she hired a different ND. And then she had a different band with Steve Barney, who's a great drummer based in the UK. 
Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting story. And he's going through some horrible shit now because of Brexit, where he's actually just had to get, he just lost a major touring gig he's been doing in Europe for years because now they limit how often you can leave the UK for touring work. And it's, it's really stupid. But he, he toured with Annie for years. Yeah. And um, we just became friends, you know, we became friends through social media. But, um, but yeah, I would have toured with her. But then, like, I love touring with Hiram. Hiram died young. I love touring with Grover Washington. He died young. And so it's like 1999, Grover had just died. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was like, to me, those, like, for an instrumental gig, like, I feel like I had done, like, all the, like, I doesn't get any better than Annie for a pop gig. It doesn't get any better for me, as a drummer, at least, than playing with Grover. Mm-hmm. I was like, what is there to do as a touring drummer? And in the meantime, because I was playing with Annie, that got me the Celine Dion call, which playing on like a, a record that went, that record's gone diamond over 10 million like domestically. So like won a couple Grammys, all of a sudden now I, I have more legitimacy as a session drummer. Yeah. And I started like missing, you know, I was, like I said, I was missing calls for sessions when I was on the road and it was before you could do shit remotely. And, um, so I, um, yeah, I was like, I'm, and like I said earlier, I was in so much physical pain from touring and I, and I really prefer recording. I love the process of making records. Yeah. I just decided to be done with touring and yeah, playing with Annie, it showed me like the, what the peak was of touring. Mm-hmm. And it also, like I said, it kind of raised my profile in the pop world and that raised my profile in the session world. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, definitely. I mean, and, I, you know, I did another five years of touring after that. But uh, that really, really, that was a very pivotal gig in my career. It sounds um, like it. It sounds like in those relationships. Yeah. And I and I, I'm, I can only guess that as you continue on the relationships that you solidify uh, just yeah. and, and that builds upon itself to create more totally. and more opportunities. Well, and this goes back to what you're talking about. Like, how do you, how do you break in? Yeah. Not to, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. yeah, it's, it's, that's the other thing I tell people. Like when I say like, don't be a dick, it's, it's because like people, you're not, you're generally not going to get gigs from other drummers. I mean, occasionally you will, like a drummer might call you and say, hey, I can't do this tour. Do you want to do it or whatever? But it's mostly, mostly like non-drummers, yeah, sorry. Um, and um, and it's like that's when the relationships really matter. And that's when because it's all word. Of, my whole career has been word of mouth. And it's and it's never anything I could have guessed, you know, like the calls that I've gotten. I never would have predict like I never would have thought I'd be working with Annie Lennox. Like she wasn't on my list of, of who I, you know, like I'm really glad I worked with her. But like when I was a kid, if, if you said who are the, like your top five artists, like I just it just wasn't like among the things that I was obsessed with. Right. So I would have told you James Brown or like this or that or whatever, but like, like so much of my career, I never would have guessed that these dots would connect in the way they did. And that's just, that's like the whole unknown thing, but it really is word of mouth. And like you said, making relationships and making a good impression on people. Like you right. never know, like I'm, I didn't make this up, but every gig you do is an audition. Whether it's like you don't know who's in the audience, you don't know who you're on the bandstand with, yeah, you don't know who's going to be, and and you don't know who's going to be like backstage. Like you might just have a really cool conversation with somebody, and that person remembers the impression you made on them, and they're like, "Hey, man, I want to give this guy a call for this tour because that seems like somebody who'd be a really good hang on the, on like the long tour bus rides." 
Yeah, um, the, 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 it's a, there's been a couple yeah. interviews that I've done, uh, and I wish I could remember. Gosh, that guy, the guy that played with Cindy Lauper in the '80s, and it, and it was all Sa- Sandy Sandy Gennaro. Sandy Gennaro, and it was a conversation he had. Yeah. Uh, and, and then like four years later, this guy was producing, uh, the new, the first Cindy Lauper record. Yeah. And, and he goes, yeah. you were so yeah. kind to me backstage. I want you to yeah. come and do this tour with this young artist. And that just led to one thing after another. Yeah. And that, that she was so, I remember seeing him in all the modern drummer ads like yeah. that, that really, I mean, he was already a working drummer, but yeah. like that really raised his profile just like with Tommy. Uh, and I think he's in Nashville now, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah. 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 But like Tommy Price is another like veteran guy who he toured with Billy Idol at his peak. And I remember seeing all like the premier drum ads with him in it. And uh, and it's the same thing. Like, you know, all that shit. It's like what like getting on the right gig at the right time. Just like boost the fuck out of your profile. And, yeah, and most yeah. of those things are from word of mouth and just making like I love that. I didn't. I've met Sandy. I don't know him well, but I, I didn't know that's how he got that gig. And I love hearing that. That's really great. Like. Yeah, it really yeah. It, it's it's really interesting, yeah. and 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 just dealing with all different kinds of personalities, and yeah. with social media and the way f- information is yeah. traveling so yeah. fast, it's it's yeah. it's more important than ever. to yeah. to, to yeah. be cool because uh, well, you just know also, yeah, just and also just, to be cool because the world is a harsh place, and like <laughs> we can go. either add we can either like add to the poison or add to like the cure. So yeah. yes, yes. Well, man, I'm going to I'm going to cut you loose. But I I so appreciate uh, 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 you letting me kind of take a couple uh, left turns here and talk about hopefully some things that you haven't talked about. You've made yourself available to so many different platforms. And I I appreciate that. The community appreciates that. Well, um, Um, thanks. Thanks for having me. Like, I've been a fan of this. I. I love podcasts in general. I listen to mostly non-drum podcasts, but I, there are a handful of drum podcasts that, that I love. And I like I just listened to the Will Kennedy episode. I think you're a partner. Yeah, yeah. One. Zach did but, that. What a what a yeah. sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but yeah, it's great shit. And like, so I'm happy to be part of it. Like I said, I wasn't really part of the drum community until I'd hit that. Dave, the host of that, reached out to me, and like, I'm kind of like I didn't really know what I was missing, but it's I'm I'm glad to be be part of it. So it's all important, man. It's it's all yeah. important. Your voice, it, it it's it's so important. Um, and and I know there's so many people that uh, that need to hear uh, uh, how you're producing things and and all this stuff. It, it, yeah. it's it's and yeah. and as we're, we're we're making changes and 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 the industry yeah. is changing and and opening up more opportunities. For maybe uh, areas of music that were like, you know what, I, I I really feel like this is where I need to be. This is what's going to scratch that itch that that live playing didn't, or 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 just drumming did not. So no, I always like, man, this when um, you know when when your name came up and and Tim mentioned you, I was like, oh, this is this has got to happen for sure. Yeah. yeah well, so. cool. I appreciate you having me, and yeah. I hope. I hope I was helpful. I was, like I said, I'm sleep deprived. I hear my voice is kind of shot, but I, I hope I gave some use, useful. There's, there's stuff, like, I'm so. sure there's like five minutes of stuff here. We, yeah. We'll just edit this down. It'll be the day. shortest episode ever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. No, man, thank you. I'll be in touch and we'll figure the yeah. filing, uh, the file sharing, stuff like that. Well, I appreciate you so much um, just carving yeah. out some of this time for us as well. Man. Yeah, no, it's it been really worked cool. out great. So yeah. my girlfriend's at Costco right now, so it worked out fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Have a great night, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, we'll be in cool. touch. 
Okay. Talk to you See later. You, man. Bye. So there you have it, my conversation with drummer and programmer Stephen Wolf. I so appreciate him opening up and making that connection between mind and body. So many things that are important for us to consider as we deal with something that's very physical and emotional. And I'm excited to explore some of these book ideas that Stephen has recommended as I go through and continue on with my journey. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with drummer Chris Parker, an old school New York City guy, worked with Bob Dylan, G.E. Smith, and Saturday Night Live. Also, big congratulations to Zach as well for getting the drum chair with the musical Ain't Too Proud. If you see them out on tour, make sure you go check that out and hear what Zach is up to these days. So that's a big win and a big thing for him, and uh, we are super excited for him to be starting that gig. But for now, thanks so much for listening. Be well, stay sane, and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.